If you have a Bible today, I'd like you to read in the book of Hebrews chapter 5. The book of Hebrews chapter 5. And I'm going to condense my reading this morning that I had originally planned on. Um, I'm just going to read Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, and we'll read down to verse 10. These pronouns are speaking of Jesus here, which you can probably tell very quickly. But Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says this. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears, unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Though he were were a son... Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. <clears throat> I'll conclude our reading this morning. That's Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. And the particular verse of interest that we have this morning is verse 7. Of our scripture reading, and I'm going to read that one more time today. It says this Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard, in that he feared. So the title of our message drawn from this scripture this morning is Intense Prayers and Supplications. Intense Prayers and Supplications. Um One of the things that I am continuously surprised by as I get older um, and I have more experience than what I did five years ago or ten years ago and I'm sure it's only going to continue as I get older and the age that, Lord willing, some of you are at, is just how broken the world is. Um, It's... I think that's one of probably the most, one of the things I underestimated the most becoming an adult. I have told you before that I was very presumptuous as a teenager into my early 20s and thought I knew a lot more than what I did. I suppose that's relatively normal. I think I probably had an extra dose of that though. And um, it explained a lot about people that I knew before when I learned about the brokenness of the world. Uh, Not just in people's lives, but things that people see in their life that makes an impression on them. Things they experience in life that just hurt. Um, The world is an intense place, really. And None of us are immune throughout our lives as much as I would like to bubble wrap my children, especially in the stage they're at now because there's such a stage of naivety. They just don't know anything about the world. And I like it that way. But I recognize also, especially with my older son and and the ones that will follow after very shortly, um... My job is to prepare them for reality, not protect them from it. Expose them to it, 
with guidance and help. Um, and and that's, that's hard. That's hard. I remember one day... Um, when my oldest son learned about divorce. Um, You know, he lived in this naive place in the world. And then we were going over to help somebody who was going through a divorce. One of his friend's parents. And it was just him and I, and I just watched me snatch some of the innocence. And it just hurt. Um, I had to really hold back the tears, not just in relaying what happened, but in what I was doing, which was a necessary thing to do. And the older I get, the more that my naivety is taken away. The more I see people um, not the way that we appear this morning, dressed up, put together, but rather marred by sin, imperfection, bad motives and intentions. Now, I'm not saying we look at everyone in a suspicious form. It's not what I'm advocating this morning. But I'm just trying to talk about how the world is broken. And that's a hard thing. And I think there's a movement today that has derived from primarily academics, schools, that has kind of sheltered kids from the, re- the full reality of that wickedness, exposed them to a really prepackaged, neat form of it, and said, now you go change it. You have the power to go and make the world a better place and go and change it. And, and so you often see young people elevated to a platform they have no business being in to try to go do something they have no capacity at that moment to understand the depth and realities of what they're trying to do. And their prescriptions are usually idealistic, unattainable, and leads inevitably to massive disappointment. Because when they recognize that the world is not this sparkling glitz and glamour place, that there's hardness and sin and pain and suffering that not only involves big corporate government powers, but comes down to institutions that are religious, just like us. It's a hard thing to swallow. And young people become, I think, very cynical. And transfer their efforts from, let me go save the world, to, you know what, that's a hopeless cause. They may not say that but I'm going to just become self-interested like the rest. I'm just going to put a little shiny um, self-righteous virtue attached to it and call it purpose that really is about me. Um, Like anyone, like a lot of young people, I did that. The more that I saw the brokenness of the world, but I did it from a religious vantage point, and you can do that. You see problems and you see things and you, you want to go be the Savior. And I'm thankful that the Lord showed me this 
pretty early on, I'm not a good savior. Nothing about me qualifies to be a savior of, of anybody or anything. My ideas, abilities, virtues, moral compass, it's all flawed. And the Lord continues to teach me, as simple as it is to understand, profound to accept, and that is, He's the only one that can help anybody in anything. He's it. There is no seven step solution. There's no PhD that's going to cause a cure. There's no thing. Now, don't mistake in me to say, you know, I'm trying to lose a little weight and there are some things you can do to aid the process, right? Any problem that there is, I'm not saying there aren't some things that you can be told that are are helpful, But I recognize in the end that the great problems that we face in our hearts and in our lives are only helped by the Lord. I've often wondered why is it that in former days people saw drastic change at times, transformations. And today we don't as much, and I don't think I know the answer to that fully. But I do think part of the answer involves that we're very prone to look to man for solutions that only God has. And this morning, if God is the only one that has them, then it would seem as though that our efforts to obtain help and salvation, not just of our souls, but of our prop, from our problems and our woes, It would seem like if I know the source and there is no other source that it would naturally lead you and I towards that source continually. Now somehow Satan is so clever and our hearts are so deceptive that perpetually planted in our minds is this idea Well, maybe I can go fix it this way. Maybe this person can fix it. Did you see the new shiny object in the room? Let's go get it and try it. And then when the end is run out of that, and we recognize it is only the Lord that can help us. And isn't when you get back to that place, isn't isn't there this strange sense of, oh yeah, oh yeah. I knew this all along, but sorry, Lord, I had to be reminded again. And so this morning, I would like to try to bring a few thoughts before you today that involve prayer. We've talked about that a lot lately, and and I don't, I feel inclined this morning that I need to talk about this again, Uh, but our Our message this morning is about intense prayers and supplications. And it's drawn from verse 7 of this text in the book of Hebrews, where we're learning about the office that Christ had of being a high priest, 
a go-between God and man. Someone that would intercede for us, act on our behalf on things pertaining to God. That's what a high priest is. Jesus is the only high priest. And the Bible is very clear about that. He is the ultimate high priest. And in verse 7, it tells us in such clear form how that he carried out his duty. What that office of the priesthood for Christ centered on. And not only what the activity was, but in verse 7, it gives us this vivid description of how it was carried out. Right, I'm sure that Brother Tommy is a former basketball coach and he could tell you a lot about basketball and doing certain things a certain way. But when you watch it, done by someone who it just comes so natural to. And they're in the moment and they're in the game and things are just, it's not just the explanation of the technicalities of something being right. But it's witnessing someone in that place and in that moment doing things precisely right that will just draw your attention. And it did with the disciples. Here it describes not only that Jesus prayed, but it begins to describe how he prayed. And what I'd like to impress upon you this morning is Jesus prayed in an intense fashion... And this intensity we find throughout the scriptures about a variety of things. Or in other words, people felt a need to pray as Jesus does here. But the thing that prodded them to pray that way was different. One man was caused to pray about something because of a problem or a situation that was different from other people in the scriptures. And so we may be a little different this morning in how we, we, we preach our message today because I want to go through examples of people who are praying like Jesus, but what caused them to pray this way was very different things. Here it says in verse 7 of our scripture reason, who's in the days of his flesh? I think this is a, a wonderful reminder the way that this is said. During his earthly life, Jesus lived just like us. So when we read this about Jesus, let's remember what you're feeling right now, the aches and the ailments and the pains and the, he felt in the same way that you do. Who in the days of his flesh, when he'd offered up prayers and supplications. Now, what is a supplication? It's not just a synonym to the word prayer. There's a nuance to the word. A supplication is a begging. Now, I've heard many people complain about things that go on periodically among us and the churches that we fellowship with, and it has to do with the emotion that we have. And certainly this morning, I grew up in an area where you could attend churches where the heart of the religion was emotion. And basically, people interpreted how spiritual a person was based upon how emotional that they could get. And this morning, I want to put a disclaimer right at the beginning in saying, I am not suggesting this morning that emotionalism is the same as being spiritual. It is not the same thing. And I think many people have been terrified from religion because they have witnessed 
extreme forms of emotionalism in the name of somebody being spiritual, they recognized even when they were lost, that is not of the Lord. And they said, anything that even appears remotely like that, I want nothing to do with it. And so they completely, as oftentimes the saying goes, throw the baby out with the bathwater and and yet neglect to remember that as cunning and crafty as Satan is, one of the most typical ways that he deceives is by mimicking what God does. And so during the times of the Great Awakenings in our own country, it was not an uncommon thing to see people on the altars calling out to God, weeping and and moaning and even being more emotional than probably what this church has ever been. And yet the Lord's Spirit was involved in it and hundreds and hundreds of people got saved, even thousands when you brought it out uh, to other churches and movements across years. And yet Satan saw that And in an attempt, please hear me, in an attempt to discredit the genuine spiritual revival, he had lost people or at times saved people mimic the emotions of what spiritual people were showing and then set that on a platform as being spiritual. And people saw the hollowness of it and were detested by it. And so we have whole religions that have developed today That if you walk into the church building and have even the amount of emotion and inflection that I'm putting in my voice now as a preacher, they don't want to hear anything of it because it's just emotional. This morning, if a person is trying to drum up some emotional reaction from people and calling it spiritual, that's wrong and ought to be denounced. First ought to be instructed because often people don't know that they're doing that. But if they perpetuate that distortion, it needs to be, an end needs to be put to it. And yet at the same time, I think what we have to recognize is when God's spirit begins to work on the hearts of individuals, the natural byproduct is emotion. All through the scriptures, we read in our devotional just two weeks ago of a man who came in the presence of God. And guess what? He trembled. He shook. He wept. He cried out, woe is me. Don't, I can't be here. You're too great for me. He, he couldn't help the response. It was a natural byproduct of the situation. Now we'll point out this morning, religion is experimental. You experience it. We all experience that a little differently. Some people are wired to be a little more emotional. Some are a little more intellectual. Some people are, um, their, their religion can come out in their activity. They, they want to work, they want to do to serve the Lord. And God, I believe we can't sit here and say, well, this one is better than this one. What we've got to accept and understand about one another and about ourselves is that those three components are part of all of us. And those things will manifest differently for all of us. And as long as it is God's spirit prompting those things, I'm skeptical to stand in judgment of how God manifests in another man or a woman. I'm hesitant to look at a man that gets behind the pulpit rather dry and, and, and teaches the word of God to say the Lord's not in that. That's not for my judgment. 
No more than it is when a man walks the aisles and shouts and jumps to say, God's not in that. I'll let the Lord be a determiner. But I want to point out here for anybody that's a skeptic of religion and emotion, look at what this says about Jesus. And look at how descriptive it is. First of all, it says prayers and supplication. The word prayer there is petitions. So Jesus came to him. In one of the other versions, it modifies that word petition by saying urgent petitions. I don't know if that should be there or not in the Greek. I didn't go that far to look at it. But we know that this verse is talking about something of intensity. There's an urgent plea. I need your help is the first word. Supplication, based in the word, is the concept of begging, pleading for help. So both words are indicating there is something of intensity going on between Christ and the Father. And it follows up, and it tells us this another important detail. He not only brought God to this in prayer, but it tells us what it was like when it was coming out. With strong crying and tears. Jesus was moved. It didn't say crying. It said strong crying and tears. Jesus was coming before the Father. And I think this is insinuating, or I don't think it's insinuating, I think it's pretty clear that he's talking about the Garden of Gethsemane. That here Jesus is being called to give the ultimate sacrifice of himself on behalf of the whole world. And he is facing the wrath and the pain of sin and judgment and all the awfulness that he's going to face in conquering death. And in being bruised for our iniquities and and the, the chastisement of our peace being placed upon him. He was looking at that in the Garden of Gethsemane and in consideration of the task that God was putting before him. And yet the desire that he had to see the redemption of mankind and coming to the knowledge or knowing the only way to accomplish God's will is to endure the hardness of sin. Jesus comes before the Father in intense prayer and supplication with strong crying and tears pleading for God's intervention and help. Here's a preacher I listened to on occasion down in Texas and one of the things that he is very pointed to do is any time that in the scriptures he feels like the, the reading inflects emotion, he tries to bring in the emotion that he thinks the scriptures are demanding. So if there's a narrative, so when he gets to the Lord's Prayer there in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's emotional. It's heaviness. It's wrought with intensity. And this morning I bring before you this, that here's what it says, he was heard. In that, he feared. He reverently submitted to the will of the Father, in other words. So he's coming to God and he has this desire. And it is so deep and so heavy. And he's weeping out before him. This is is God in the flesh is doing this. He has such an intense desire for something. And tears are flowing. And he yet in his heart is saying, but Lord, I'm willing to surrender all of this emotion, all of these feelings that come with it for your will to be done. I got to me considering today, what are things that ought to provoke this type of prayer? 
Like what are things that we see and experience? We've experienced here in this church even since I've been here. Services of plenty where we pray and it's nothing wrong with it, but it's rather dull, frankly. And we've experienced others that are not dull at all. They're found with the intensity in verse 7 where we're laboring, where we're intense. And I'm not saying this morning, I recognize that as finite sinful human beings, all of our prayers are not going to look like verse 7. But I guess this morning, if I had a goal, it would be to press you towards having more of them. Towards more prayers like Jesus is exemplifying here and furthermore showing you this morning, what are things that cause people in the scriptures to pray as Jesus did? One of the first examples that came to my mind comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 3. It would be probably where all of us started our intensity of prayer. I've heard many people before be very skeptical about people seeking the Lord and laboring in prayer and praying with intensity as opposed to what? Here, the Ninevites... Jonah has come and he has proclaimed this message and said, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Unless you repent. I think his message was a lot more than that. I think he preached more than just those few words. But nonetheless, he preaches this message to these people. And what does the Bible say was their reaction? Oh, they became concerned at their sin. They saw the the inevitable destruction. God, through his spirit, brought power to those words. And those people believed that in 40 days, if they did not repent, they would burn in hell and their city would be destroyed. And that, that magnifying of truth in their heart and in their mind caused the whole city to get sackcloth and ashes, proclaim a fast, Universally, all of them bow down in prayer that God might suspend his judgment in their destruction. I've seen at times lost people pray like that before. And lost people, I would say this. You don't drum up intensity like that. The intensity is a natural reaction to the reality of the message. What you pray for is that God would send the message of your future home in your heart in a way that it has never been. I can remember going through times when I sought the Lord, when I would come to the altar and I would pray, and there was no life to it. I wanted to be saved. I really did want to be saved. But what was provoking that was, yes, a a good-hearted desire to be saved, but it was not the depth of my sin and the reality of my judgment and standing before God. And because I did not have that deep conviction and contrition, I was instructed rightfully, pray that God will more deeply convict you. Pray that God would take the words of the messages, the words of the testimony and songs, or just the life and the things that happen, the incidents in your life that happen, and drive home to you the realities of where you stand before God. And God did that. Unexpectedly, in a very unexpected way, he did that for me. On a Sunday that I I didn't have my mind set on the things of God, but God in his own timing, in his own way, when I had let off the gas pedal, when I had stopped pushing so hard myself, God, I I began to say, Lord, you're going to have to do this because I can't do this. I'm not saying I was praying that the moment I got saved. It became the attitude of my heart for a few months. 
I don't know what to do. Lord, I want to be convicted, but I can't force myself to be convicted. I gave God a little time. Guess what? Just like the Ninevites, the message came. And as many people say, I don't even remember what the message was about now. But then it was heavy and it weighed on me. And those people, they called out to God. They repented of their sins and God saw their repentance and forgave them. What else should elicit strong crying and tears, intense prayer and supplication like Jesus? I think from us that are saved, sin. Our own sin. There is a danger where, where we are at. Us specifically. Religious people are at. And here's this danger. The further that our culture falls into the blackness of sin, the more it gives us a false confidence of our righteousness. Or in other words, the blacker that gets, the more white our gray looks. And it doesn't look so bad. And so, as a people, we begin to slowly drift individually, but also collectively, further into sin. Because the further they get and the extreme they get to, our minds naturally in their fallen state justify ourselves by saying, but we're not like that. And as long as our eyes and minds are so fixed on the culture the compulsion to repentance will be lessened. But when our eyes are perpetually fixed upon Jesus and his righteousness and the standard that God puts forward, and then we look at ourselves, the more we feel compelled to continually call out to God for repentance of our sins. Here, two examples come to mind. I'm not going to preach on both of them, but in 2 Samuel, you remember, I just preached not too long ago, and Chapter 12 of when David sinned. Okay, that's an, an outlier example you can think to yourself. And I could think to myself, you know, he went out, he did this horrible thing, murdering a man, having this conspiracy, having this child, committing adultery, all those things. Never done that. Let me tell you about another one that doesn't get as much attention, but really moved me and kind of where this sermon came from this week when I was uh, studying. It's the, it's the ninth chapter of the book of Ezra. One of those lost books, one of those lost chapters, right? People usually stop reading Ezra after chapter 3. And you go in later on, you begin to read more about the book of Ezra. And there's some some powerful things going through the book of Ezra in chapter 9. Here's what God has done. Israel had sinned. He had taken them into 70 years of, of slavery in Babylon. During the time of Daniel's life, they were graciously brought out. Taken back to, allowed to go back to Jerusalem during Zerubbabel and Joshua Joshua's time, which is recorded in the beginning of Ezra. And actually, this Persian king, this this king who had no religious bone in his body and comes to the right religion, does this miraculous thing and says, any Jew who wants to go back from all of my kingdom can go back to Jerusalem, can build their temple and their city back, and I'll pay for all of it. What? What? That's amazing that God would make such miraculous provision. And as you read the book of Ezra, the prophets and priests during that time are sensible that this is God's doing, that a pagan king would bring such deliverance to our people after the bondage we've just experienced. They get back there. The foundation is built. 
They begin to build this temple. They begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Ezra comes back, I believe, in chapter 8. And he's got this burden to reestablish the law and the ways of God. And he comes and he begins to do that. And then in chapter 9, he, this man comes to him and he says, You know, Ezra, those sins that we committed that caused us to go into captivity, well, you don't know it, but we started doing them again. In other words, God's given us a second chance, and guess what? We just blew it. Because the very sins that caused us, the intermingling with all these other cultures that we, ought not, we were told explicitly not to do, not only have just the fringe Jews done that, but even the priests have gone and married Egyptian wives, and he starts listing off all these different places. And The Bible says in the ninth chapter of the book of Ezra that Ezra hears this, and he just falls to the ground. He rips his his clothes and he falls to the ground and he just weeps. And he looks to the God of heaven. I want to read to you what what he says. This, This moved me so much this week as I was reading it, considering this situation. It says this in verse four, excuse me, verse three. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment, my mantle, plucked off the hair of my head and my beard and sat down. Astonished or appalled is what it should be. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of, of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I st- sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose up from my heaviness. And having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees. And I spread out my hands unto the Lord my God and said, Oh my God. I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespasses grown up under the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings, our priests, been delivered into the hands of the kings of the land, to the sword, to the captivity, and to a spoil, and a confusion of face as it is this day. And now, for a little space of grace, excuse me, and now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God. I want to stop there. Lord, you were helping us. You forgave us. You sent us back here. And now we're blowing it again. We're wasting this opportunity. How can I even look up to you when you've granted me this little space of grace and I'm messing it up? And he goes and he begins to plead for God's forgiveness. Lord, please, please. We've been through so much. I have in my heart and mind had a vision for so many things for the future generations. And we're messing it up. Sometimes prayers of intense, of intensity, supplications of intensity must be brought for something like this. Where God has granted you by yourself an opportunity to do things right with your life. Make things right. Something you know he's leading you to do. 
Something that he's, he's breathed this new chance for you to rectify whatever it was that you were doing that you knew was outside the will of God. And then you blow it. And aren't you thankful today that God is not this God who's going to come and say, no, I'm not going to give you any other chances. But what he required of these people was something I find nowhere else in the scriptures. It was a harsh requirement. And yet God required it of them. And when they fulfilled it, he continued to walk with them. Sometimes intense prayers and supplications come because we have sinned. Sometimes it comes as a part of intercession for those that we love sin. There is a a wonderful account in the book of Genesis, chapter 19, where Abraham goes before God. You remember as he stood up there with Lot and they separated ways and Lot went into Sodom and Gomorrah, this well-known wicked city. Shouldn't have gone there. I, I imagine, I don't know this, but I imagine Abraham tried to warn him against it. You can go that direction, but don't go to Sodom. It's a wicked city. He went there anyway. These angels appear to Abraham and Sarah. We preached on this a few weeks ago. And then as they're leaving, the Bible says that yet Abraham still stood before the Lord. So the angels left, but Abraham said, I'm not done. But I'm done with the angels. I just want to talk to God now. And he had learned that they were going there and that destruction was coming to Sodom. And so Abraham begins to intervene on their behalf. He begins to pray desperately for these people. Now hear me this morning. It wasn't for people just like Lot, right? It wasn't just for somebody that he loved. He begins to intercede not just for Lot's safety and for his, his nieces and nephews and great nieces and nephews. That's not just who he was interceding for. He was interceding for wicked people. At this morning, I think of things going on in our world, and I think of people that perhaps you might personally know or that you've heard about. And when I think of abortion doctors, and when I think of people who are out to uh, try to harm things throughout this world, people who are in the prisons, listen, there's a degree to which we're allowed to intercede for the wicked people that live in the world. Praying that God would show mercy because what we understand is the judgment that they will experience in eternity is far worse than anything we desire anybody to. Abraham goes to God for these sodomites, the city of wickedness, and he pleads and he wrestles with God. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. God, there was there's nobody, weren't that many there. But there's a verse that's often overlooked in the very next chapter. Here's what it says. Abraham's prayers made a difference. This is important to note. Sodom was destroyed. But listen to this. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham. Okay, so what did he do? And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in the city which Lot dwelt. Abraham goes and says, Lord, give me a city. And God said, you know, it's not my will to give you a city, but for your prayer's sake, I'm going to at least save the one that you love. And he took him out of there. And yet you can read Abraham's intense prayer coming before the Lord in intercession before God on their behalf. I think of Paul in Romans chapter 9. He saw these men, listen, the, the, 
the amazing part of Romans chapter 9 when Paul is praying and he's saying, Lord, if you need to take away my salvation in order to save these people, have it to be the case. He's speaking in a hypothetical there. It's not possible to be done. But he's saying, that's how much I desire this. Now, here's the amazing part about that. You know who he was praying for? The people who were persecuting him. Right? I would have a hard time praying that for my own children. And eternal damnation? Right? Maybe death, yes. But what Paul is getting at is something far worse than dying for your family. He's saying be eternally damned for your family or children. And yet Paul's heaviness and sorrow was that God would so rescue these Jewish people who were deceived as kinsmen in the flesh is what he says. And those yet as we go through the book of Acts were the very people who were the catalyst behind his persecution. And he is in such heaviness. He even wants them to be saved. You're talking about an intensity, a sorrow of intercession. All through the scriptures, we find prayers. I've got a few things written down here of intervention in a bad situation. Jehoshaphat, I'm not going to go through all these. Restoration in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. A strength to do God's will. This is our text right here in the book of Hebrews. Jeremiah prayed for intensely for the judgment of the evil. Jacob prayed intensely for protection, decision-making, generational sin. All through, I have examples of all of these things where these people are coming before God. And here was the thing that jumped out at me as I was going through these things and I was writing these things down and I was studying all these scriptures and I was seeing all these examples in the scriptures and I was asking the question, what was causing the intensity of these prayers? And all these different things that I've mentioned and so many more I was going through and I was seeing all these things. And here's the thing that just blew my mind. We fit the need of every single one. Everyone. Going on in our world, our culture, our church, our churches right now and people's lives in this very church right now. Every single one of these. So if one of these was so heavy upon people that it it caused even Christ to go to this degree, how much more the whole bag of them cause us towards intense prayer and supplication? This morning, I, I know that this church prays I know this church has witnessed in this very building prayers like we're talking about this morning. I know many of you periodically go through that type of prayer. I want it more, don't you? Because remember, if we go back to the very beginning this morning, that's our only hope. Our only hope is to lay our pleas before the throne of grace to God. Where would I start praying? Here's where I've started praying. Lord, just as I had to, with Judson, unveil the eyes of reality to him and thereby watch his pain for a minute, 
thereby watch the questions emanate about divorce out of him? I am more veiled to spiritual things than what he is to natural things. And I know that the only thing that will cause me to call out in this fashion is if you just take the scales off of my eyes. Some of you know know the spirit of coming in this morning is one of great love. Some of you have gotten very comfortable with the fact that your children and grandchildren right now are in a state of condemnation. I have too. Because the last 10 days and 30 days and 50 days and 200 days, nothing's happened to him. It gives me the false impression that tomorrow nothing else is going to happen to him. But that's not necessarily the case. And where a tree falls, so shall it lie. I have family. I'm just comfortable right now with them being in a state of condemnation. I don't want to be there. You have spouses, you have children, you have grandchildren, you have friends. We haven't even gotten to where Paul was at, his enemies. So where do we begin to pray? Lord, unveil my eyes. I don't, I don't, I don't ever advocate, I would never advocate people to pray for dreams or these things like this, but I can say this. Sometimes God can give you something in an unexpected way that makes something real. I don't know if I've ever shared this with the church before. One time I was at a basketball game. I was playing. Very intensely involved in basketball. And it was a a regional championship game. Farthest we ever got in the state tournament. I was on this court and essentially... Something happened in the stand, or something happened in the game where it was the fourth quarter and it's the last two minutes, and the team that ended up beating us had just a play had happened to where they just got out of reach. There was no way we were going to win, and everybody in the crowd recognized it. And there were I don't I don't know how many thousand people there. I, I would even dare to guess there were a few thousand people there. And I remember this player went up and he started shooting free throws. But the exuberance and the jubilant, the, 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 the exuberance from that play was still at its fever pitch. And the team that never got very far was realizing we're, we're going to the semi-state. And so the whole crowd is just screaming. Everybody's standing up. And all at once, in my mind's eye, the whole crowd just dropped. And I could see in my mind's eye all of these people burning in hell. And it just gave me this overwhelming feeling. And what what I still, what, what, what I, that day could not get past was that the likelihood is that some of these people will go there. Now, my eyes were fixed on basketball to an unhealthy degree. It was my idol. And here's what God spoke to me. All the time these people are on the road to hell, you're just entertaining them on the way there. I'm just telling you what God spoke to me. It was this thing that God did in my heart. 
I didn't have some vision or dream. Don't, don't make it out to be some wacko religious thing. It's not. I'm saying in my mind's eye, God showed me that. And it so drastically impacted me, it reoriented my life. Because I heard the screaming. It was there. I saw it. I looked around. I saw the masses. And all I could think about is an ocean of, of burning of people screaming. And it did nothing less than change the course of my life. And to this day, when I get hardened, when I get comfortable with the state of condemnation over those people that I love or even those people I don't know, once in a while, that that vivid picture, I can still see the colors and the faces and the screaming and the signs being held up. It just rushes back. And I'm reminded... I need to do something to help these people. Where would I start if I wanted to deepen and have a more intense prayer life? Pray that God would show you that. Or something like that. I don't doubt that there are people in this room who have had experiences very similar, though different. But at the core of it, it was similar. It's that God was showing you a spiritual reality that so impacts you, it leaves you forever changed. Some of you have children who I know you worry about. You tell me you worry about them. Their attitude towards church, their, maybe they're saved and they just not seem interested in following the Lord. Let me put before you, have you gotten comfortable, unintentionally comfortable, with them being in that state. And if not, you say, no, I haven't. I've been doing all these things. But have you done the thing that we spoke about this morning? Have you cast all your eggs in that basket and said, Lord, I have come to wrestle with you today. I've come to wrestle. And I may, for time's sake, have to let go of you at this moment, but I've got to come back tomorrow. And I've got to wrestle again. I believe, listen to me, please hear me in saying this. I believe we will see more prevailing if we pray in this manner. You know what prevailing I mean? Success, fruit, the desires that we're wanting. But listen, here's one thing that it just, it so convicts me. How our young, we're going to advocate to our young people. We do and we should. Pray, pray, pray. God hears, God hears, God answers. He's all powerful, he's all powerful. And then we get up and we make all these requests about all these things and they never see them come to pass. What would you conclude? I mean, really, what would you conclude? The same thing I would conclude. The same thing any sane person would conclude. Well, God isn't hearing and God isn't answering and God... If for no other reason than to teach our children that prayer prevails with God. To see where we can say, you know what? I prayed for Sodom and God didn't grant me Sodom. But look at Lot. He didn't answer my prayer to the degree that I wanted, but he answered my prayer. You know, God didn't get us off scotch free like Ezra. 
We blew the second chance. And he didn't just say, well, you're magically forgiven, now move on. No, there was pain involved. There was sacrifice required that lasted for a whole generation. But God still didn't abandon us to captivity. Or what about the triumphant successes like Jesus experienced here in Hebrews 5? He prayed with strong crying and tears. And guess what? God answered him abundantly. How do I know that? Because we all have a chance to be saved, don't we? God heard him. My prayer today, in private, in private, strong crying and tears, intense prayer and supplication, I advocate to you this morning. And when you want to give up, when you want to quit, if there's one thing that could stop you from from doing that, pray or consider what our young people will conclude if they don't see God answering, at least to some degree, the prayers we bring before him. If, if I had somebody telling me about a God, you know, that's one of my, that's a litmus test for me. If somebody's telling me about their religion, about their God, about their salvation, prove all things to see whether they're of God. I'll, I'll give you a chance. I'll listen about Allah, Buddha, I don't care, I'll listen. But in the end, I want, I want evidence. I want experimental evidence. I want to see it, I want to touch it, I want to feel it, I want to hear it, I want to know it. That's my ultimate litmus test. You know, it's almost a a self-evident one, too. That's what everybody uses. Everybody uses something like that. Our children are no different. As As we come into this next 30 days, we have the minister school coming up. We have revival coming up. For 30 days, 30 days, I'm asking you, to do this. Your own time, your own schedule, your own way, with your spouse, by yourself, in your car, in your closet, wherever. For 30 days, won't you join with me in private in intense prayer and supplication? That God would move. That he would move. Really move. And that we could taste and see that the Lord is good. I know he's good. But I want to taste and see it. That's our message this morning. I pray that God would use it in your heart. As he has as I've gone through these scriptures in my own. You all know if you've been here Wednesday night. That message of Brother Elliot's really messed me up. In a good way. Really, just really messed me up. The Lord used it And he's continuing to. And I ask that you would join with me for 30 days of prayer. That's our message today.